Hello everyone from Tampa, Florida. Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host Gavin Rice and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. I hope everyone had a lovely holiday, time hopefully spent with friends and family. I sure had an awesome time. As mentioned in, I believe it was the the last episode, things were so busy for me, but I was able to squeak in a day and a half off for Christmas and also managed to attend a a little New Year's Eve party put on by uh, an old high school friend of mine. So we had such a, a lovely time. And in other news, just before Christmas, I am uh, so happy to announce that I'm recently engaged. My my fiance Laurelyn and I are beyond ecstatic and just cannot wait for this next chapter to unfold. So yeah, things have uh, quite a few things have happened in in the last couple of weeks since the last episode, and uh, I've been really wanting to get back into recording. Time has been really limited, uh, given how much I've been flying lately. And speaking of which, I'm currently in my hotel room in St. Petersburg, Florida. It's uh, close to just west of Tampa on the uh, the Tampa overnight. Uh, This is day three of uh, of a four day trip, which just started on New Year's Day. And this trip is a little strange too because of its footprint. Day one began with a a deadhead from Boston to Tampa, and then we just operated one leg from Tampa to Newark, Newark, uh, New Jersey, and we spent the night there. Day two started some back and forth action. We went uh, just from Newark to Tampa, and then Tampa back to Newark, and this back and forth, we, we refer to it as a turn meaning that it, it comes back to where you, you were just one leg prior. Uh, and that was it for day two, uh, albeit those legs were, were not so short. Uh, it's, it's about two, three quarter hours of, of flying each leg. So it was over, it was over about five hours of flying total for that day. And, uh, and then it was back to the, the same hotel for night two, which was, which was interesting. Uh, day three was, was pretty simple. Uh, it was, it was just one leg from Newark back down to Tampa I mean, talk about a lot of, of, of a lot of back and and forth flying, and and now I'm recording to you from my hotel here in Tampa, awaiting the dawn of day four. Uh, thus far, this this trip has been just like I said, just a lot of back and forth. But tomorrow, uh, for day four, it starts with a, a deadhead from Tampa to Boston. It's followed by a two-hour sit, and then we fly a Chicago turn. And mind you, Chicago is, is not all that close to Boston. So, I mean, that, that'll that be another, I want to say, five hours total of, of flying on top of the three-hour deadhead, mixing the two-hour sit in between. And we're looking at a, a 12-hour duty day. And, and this is very close to our duty limit of 13 hours. And, and, and since this is three legs of flying... Uh, even though the, the deadhead, I'm, I'm not flying technically, it does count um, per, per the, uh, the, the duty limitations because it's the beginning of the day. Uh, we report a little after 10 a.m., and so per the, uh, the duty limits of, of Part 117 for the regulations, it gives us a maximum duty time of 13 hours. And what's really tough about this is that if we time out in Chicago, meaning that we are 
perhaps set to exceed our duty time on the way back to Boston, maybe because of some delays or something. Uh, we, we'd be given a hotel for the night to accommodate for that, but this would mean uh, we don't go home to the next day, and that's into a day off, which I would, I would not be so keen on. Now, there there is a, a pay incentive for working into a, a day off, but I, I still want to get home because uh, I'll only have one day off before going on to a next trip. So anyway, that that's a, a little snapshot into this trip. Um, things have been so active for me with flying that all the days have become such a blur. And sometimes I, I don't even remember where I am. I mean, one morning uh, about a week ago, I woke up thinking I was in New York. But I looked outside and saw some palm trees. I was like, ah, oh, right. I'm in Orlando, and I, I totally forgot. <laughs> so you, you can kind of get how uh, how wild things can, can get with this job. I mean, it's so much traveling that, that I sometimes lose awareness of where I am. And while this might sound a little concerning, maybe, um, I, I think it's actually an okay thing. Because it, it means I'm totally not worrying too much about where I am and, and uh, when it's not so important. You know, what matters is, is making sure I wake up when the alarm goes off and report for duty, and I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be uh, at that given time. Everywhere in between, ah, doesn't matter so much. <laughs> but when I do show up for work, I'm ready to take on whatever challenges come my way. And one interesting challenge is dealing with inoperative equipment on board the aircraft, and that is the main subject of today's episode. I occasionally will post on my, my Instagram story a, a goofy selfie or or maybe just a, a picture of a plane and, and titling where I'm on the trip and, and, uh, and, and what I have remaining to go on the trip. And it's just kind of a fun little way to stay connected with friends and, and family so they can see where I'm at. And I had my last trip of, let's see, of, of 2023 that ended on December 29th. And I, I think I made some silly quote along the lines of, of May 2024, bring us good tailwinds and fewer bleed air MELs. An inquiry about uh, bleed MELs from a friend made me realize that many people who follow me maybe don't know what bleed air is, let alone an MEL. So that's what I'll, I'll I decided, yeah, maybe I'll unwrap that in, in this episode. So what's bleed air? Well, bleed air comes, uh, it's, it's air that comes from the engines. It's um, for the main engines, it's essentially borrowed air. Uh, and then bleed air also comes from the APU, which stands for the auxiliary power unit, uh, which is also a, another, it's a smaller engine in the tail of the aircraft. And so bleed air has three main functions. It's used to start the main engines. It also provides a compressed air source to pressurize the cabin uh, so that when we're up at altitude, we, we can pressurize the cabin. And then it also supplies uh, air to the anti-ice systems, hot air in this case. Uh, and for starting the, the main engines, we typically begin with the APU running. Uh, and since the APU is smaller, the APU itself can be started with a battery on board, uh, much like you might just start your car. You know, it's, it's got a battery to, to start the ignition. So the APU will get up and going. Once that's running, it will supply electrical power to the entire aircraft and then also supplies uh, a source of bleed air. And this bleed air from the APU is powerful enough to turn the, men, the main engine core over 
so that it can rotate up to a speed where then fuel and an ignition can be introduced and voila, you, you've got the, the engine, the main engines running, or, or at least one of them at a time. <laughs> so what if our APU is inoperative? Well, in this case, uh, ground crews would need to connect a ground air start cart, which is often referred to as a, a huffer cart. Uh, and this will act in the same way that the APU does in order to get one of the engines started. And once one engine is started, the, the, the huffer cart can then be disconnected and the aircraft can be powered all on its own at this point, just on the one engine. And when it comes time to start the other engine, the running engine will supply bleed air to the other engine, just like before, uh, and now we can start the second engine. This is uh, thanks to a, a cross bleed valve. So engine, uh, let's say we started engine one, for example, with the huffer cart at the gate. Once that engine is all good, the huffer cart's disconnected, and then we, we back away from the gate, uh, and then somewhere along the way, uh, when we're taxiing out to the runway, we'll, when it's time to start the, the second engine, we'll ensure the pressure is good enough in the right engine, and again, this is thanks to the cross bleed valve. Uh, so in the Embraer, it's it's somewhere around 40, yeah, it's about 40 psi pounds per square inch of pressure that we're looking for. And sometimes we have to throttle up the the number one engine in order to to maintain that pressure. And once we get that pressure, we can go ahead and just start the the second engine uh, in the same way that we would. And, and in the Embraer, it's pretty awesome. It's just this little knob that we turn, and we just monitor the system, but the computer just does it all for you. Uh, compare that to, uh, I think, in that, that uh, one of those last episodes with Kellen where uh, he was talking about in the, the 737, there's, there's a little bit more involved uh, on the flight deck when it comes to starting an engine. you got to introduce the fuel and turn the ignition on and off and ground and all this stuff. And, uh, but the, the Ember is very automated. It's just this little switch that we turn. So all in all, with, with uh, two engine jets, we normally have three sources of bleed air when everything's working normally. Again, the APU, and then engines one, and, and, and the other engine. But can the aircraft still work with a, a missing bleed source? Absolutely. I mean, just like aforementioned, we sometimes will have an inoperative APU, and other than needing a huffer cart at the gate to, to get an engine started, the rest of the operation is not too greatly impacted. In fact, we can even have an engine bleed source inoperative as well and still be okay on just a single bleed source. It's not ideal at all, but it's it's perfectly safe. And when I say ideal, uh, or when I say not ideal rather, I mean that operationally we are maxed out at a cruising altitude of 31,000 feet on a single bleed source. Um, and, and depending on the APU, uh, like I said before, starting at the gate may be required, uh, and, and that means that airports we, we fly into must have a start cart if we didn't have an APU going. But what, I, what I've had uh, the last few times that this is, uh, or the last couple months that I've had a, a couple cases of this happening, is we've had just a, a, a single engine bleed source that has been an operative, and, and each occurrence We've still had at least had our APU working, but again, it still adds some operational setbacks as I, as I mentioned before. So when, when something malfunctions, like in this case a, a bleed source, instead of spending hours fixing the problem uh, or, or maybe having to cancel the flight due to inoperative equipment, 
maintenance can apply what's called an MEL. An MEL stands for Minimum Equipment List. It's essentially a, a list of things that can be inoperative for a certain amount of time before requiring to be uh, fully fixed. And many MELs are, are not what we might call impactful on the operation. Uh, an example of that could be when a navigation light bulb is out. We obviously need navigation lights, but in the light housing on the wingtip, we actually have two of the exact same bulbs on each wing next to each other. So if our right wing green light is out, maintenance can flip a simple switch to the other bulb and voila, we're in business. And this, what this does is it saves a lot of time instead of getting up on, on a ladder and, and changing the bulb. And that's why we have two. Uh, another harmless example might be a, a static discharger. And these are little wires that hang off the end of the wings, uh, specifically on the ailerons and the winglets, and also on the tail as well on the, uh, the horizontal stabilizer and the, the rudder. And they are simply there to allow static charge buildup that, that has occurred throughout the aircraft due to friction of, of just flying through the air for an extended period of time. Um, in, in, in the atmosphere, you can get a, a buildup of static charge. And, and that static buildup instead of just staying on board the aircraft and, and possibly harming uh, the electronics of the aircraft, maybe frying some things, uh, that these little wires allow the static buildup to exit into the atmosphere instead of staying on board. Uh, and we have many of these static dischargers. So if, if one or two are missing, they can be deferred. Um, and it's, it's not a big deal. They'll, they'll eventually get replaced. Uh, and some MELs do have a performance penalty and we have to make sure that these penalties are applied when we calculate for the, the takeoff and landing data. Uh, an example of this would be flap fairing seals. So flap fairings, sometimes there a lot of people refer to them as canoes, are these large fairings. Uh, they kind of look like canoes, so I guess that's where it got its name. Uh, they're these fairings that cover the flap track assembly on the underside trailing edge of the wings. So these giant boat-looking things next time you look outside uh, and you see those those boat looking things uh, that do do extend a little bit from the trailing edge of the wing that's what those are these flap fairings and flap fairings are simply there to protect the flap tracks from well just any outside debris i mean it's it's uh, metal components so you don't want stuff getting in there that could they could jam the track which would then uh, it wouldn't allow the the flaps to retract uh, and and uh, extend and it also creates better aerodynamics around that that uh, that flap track. So if some of the seals on the on the edge of the track are are missing, there is is now more drag than normal because airflow is not going to smoothly flow over the tracks if you have a, a seal a little uh, a gap in the seal. And so because of that, we have to apply a penalty in our takeoff and landing data. And and so. We just have to ensure when we when we see this type of MEL on the aircraft, we say, okay, we take a mental note to ourselves, all right, we need to make sure that once we do push for our, our landing numbers or our takeoff numbers, or both for that matter, uh, we should see a little note in there saying that it's accommodated for the fact that there's a little performance penalty. Uh, and and uh, in terms of our, our takeoff planning, obstacle avoidance, everything, everything needs to be accounted for in the in this case. So you can see how, how some MELs don't have a big impact or pretty much no impact on the operation, while others do. And for the bleed air MEL, like I said earlier, we are limited to 31,000 feet of altitude, 
because one source, one bleed source, cannot provide enough cabin pressurization above that altitude. And additionally, this means that if we are in uh, icing conditions, the entire anti-ice system is only powered by one bleed source. Uh, and this becomes very challenging when we have a tailwind and need to descend on an arrival. The perfect example is coming on the Roebuck arrival into Boston during the winter. Uh, and this, this arrival starts, it has a couple of feeder routes, but it, it starts over the New York area and um, kind of heads over Long Island before heading a little bit towards the Cape and then peeling back up north to, to Boston. And so during the winter, the, the prevailing winds are, are pretty strong. Uh, and so there's, there's often a, a fairly good tailwind on that arrival. And what this means for us is it requires a faster rate of descent in order to meet all of the crossing restrictions on the arrival. Uh, and most being because of this, again, with this tailwind, we need uh, to, to meet all these crossing restrictions. Most points on the arrival, in order to make those crossing restrictions, it's going to require complete idle thrust on the aircraft. And normally that, that's no issue, but when we have a single bleed source and enter icing conditions, the engines will actually automatically spool up higher than normal to provide sufficient bleed air to the anti-ice system. And especially on a single bleed source, the whole anti-ice system is relying on one source to provide enough heat to, to heat all the, the system. It's, it's going to need a lot. Uh, and to, to kind of compare normal operations on a descent, our idle thrust will be 30-ish percent. Uh, of the power that we have available, which is a, a good idle thrust when we're when we're trying to uh, get down. But once we're once we're doing that that single bleed and in icing conditions, that idle speed is going to be upwards of 50. And I've actually seen I think the highest I saw was 55 percent thrust, which means that's a lot of excess thrust that you do not want when you're trying to descend. And so it becomes increasingly hard to maintain our airspeed while on descent. Uh, the airspeed can slip away from you. And so we often have to, to open the speed brakes uh, and also create step-down fixes to level off to, to meet the next speed and altitude restrictions uh, in the flight plan. And and, uh, and it's it just takes a little bit more thinking uh, to, to kind of cope with this this single uh, bleed source and for my listeners who who uh who tune in regularly is this any deja vu what i'm uh, talking about uh absolutely in, in episode 31 i actually talk about descent planning and i, I believe i bring up this exact same uh, example of the roebuck arrival into boston so if you're curious uh, about how we manage our descent planning swing back a, a few episodes to uh, episode number 31 i talk all about it but there you have it. Uh, that's It's a little glimpse into what uh, bleed air is used for and what MELs are. Uh, and you might imagine that the, the MEL list is long and you'd be very correct. Uh, before every single leg we fly, we always check the logbook and we make sure that all the MELs are properly noted in our paperwork and that any items written up have been signed off by maintenance. Uh, and some items have, have also that um, they need to be reflected on our dispatch paperwork as well. And we have to verify that uh, any that are required are listed on, on that uh, dispatch paperwork. So yeah, there, there's an, an element to this job that's, that's more than just flying a plane. 
uh, a lot of it is verifying paperwork uh, and ensuring the uh, the correct MELs are applied and that procedures are properly followed, given any inoperative equipment. Uh, and, and some of it, you know, it might seem kind of dull, but it's, it's very important. Uh, it's a very important part of our operation, and it's why airline travel is still very safe and why the completion factor is still there as well. I mean, imagine if you had uh, aircraft that had broken equipment and if, if there was no MEL list, it would have to always be fixed before flying. And that would mean more delays, more cancellations, and you just wouldn't have the same completion factor if you always had to make sure every single thing was fixed. Uh, and, and I've said it in, in the past. I mean, aircraft, these aircraft are designed with so much redundancy in place that it might sound kind of uneasy uh, that I'm telling you that we fly with inoperative equipment but it's so normal. I mean, the, the safety record speaks for itself that sometimes you can have certain equipment that's inoperative for a certain amount of time before it needs to, be, to get fixed. And like I said, with the MELs, they will get fixed eventually. Um, they're broken down into different classes based on uh, how quickly they need to be fixed a certain number of days. Uh, and then some of them will have a, a reinspection as well. So uh, sometimes we've had indications for electrical indications for doors that are inoperative the door is fine obviously we're not going to fly with an inoperative door uh, main cabin door but sometimes the indication is not correct um, or, or it's just uh, not reliable with maybe a sensor is out or something and so one of the reinspection things that we'll have is maintenance has to come before every single flight to verify the door is properly sealed before we fly. So some things, again, there's there's all these procedures set in place to make sure that the operation is still very safe, even if we have any kind of inoperative equipment. So there you have it. I know that's a little bit shorter, but that concludes this episode of Cleared for Takeoff. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you found this one interesting. I'll be back next time. Until then, Happy New Year, and as always, fly safe. 